Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Diplomacy Fails presents... The July Crisis Anniversary Project, a day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago. Persuading Tisa. Today is the 14th of July, 2014, and on this day 100 years ago, occurred the following events. As the Hungarian minister-president, and thus the representative of his kingdom's interests, Stefan Tisa felt he had every reason for opposing war. Bringing more ethnic nationals into the Habsburg Empire would surely destabilise it even further. Such a war of conquest and partition would also dilute the Hungarian presence, since it would be balanced against new ethnicities within the theoretically conquered Serbia. Tisa had yet to be given serious evidence to implicate Serbia in the crime of the 28th of June, though he would certainly have had his suspicions like everyone else. As the joint premier of the Habsburg Empire, he would also have been up to date with military plans, mostly concerning Hungary, but also for the empire as a whole, so he would surely have realised the state that the Austro-Hungarian armed forces were in. Because of these reasons, Tisa's convictions had only been strengthened in the face of the pro-war party, which contained both his counterpart, the Austrian minister-president, and the foreign minister. He had utilised his considerable pull to veto any plans for immediate action against Serbia in the early stages, and had thereafter thrown out plans to mount a secretive war against the Balkan state. Tisa had opted instead for a diplomatic approach, which would surely result in the same victory once the Serbs acquiesced. This would also have removed any scrutiny from the international community. Austria-Hungary, Tisa believed, would not be the bad guy if it followed his strategy. A diplomatic victory was nothing to sneeze at, and it would signal to the other regional powers that Austria was still capable of standing up to its neighbours when needs be. Having carried these convictions, virtually alone in the Habsburg government, for the past two weeks though, Tisa was finally weakening. On the morning of Tuesday the 14th of July, 1914, he knew Berchtold would be expecting an answer from him, and the previous weekend of anti-Hausberg demonstrations in the Serb press and on the streets of Belgrade 
combined with the attacks against Austro-Hungarian honor, were removing his walls of resistance. When he met Berchtold that morning on the 14th, he told him that, as each day passed, he had been strengthened in the conviction that Austria-Hungary must come to a bold resolve to demonstrate its vitality and put an end to the unendurable state of affairs in the southeast. Tisa was informed of German urging and promises of support, having been before sceptical of the sincerity of Germany to aid its ally. Tisa now had to admit that he was particularly impressed by the unconditional manner in which Germany has ranged herself at the side of the dual monarchy. While Tisa said it had not been easy to take the decision of advising war, he was now convinced of its necessity. The final straw for Tisa had been the anti-Habsburg demonstrations, but Berchtold was able to add to the Hungarians' frustration at the situation by providing the dossier on the assassination that had been conducted by Dr. Friedrich von Weisner. The language that expressed strong suspicion towards Serb involvement and noted complicity of someone in Serbia so as to arm the agents and get them across the border was then added to the German language urging action and promising support. With this ammo, which Berchtold had collected for the very purpose of persuading Tisa, the Hungarians' resistance ended. By all accounts, it seemed, Berchtold had finally won. The indefatigable Hungarian had apparently given in after a fortnight of stalling and resistance. The price exacted by Tisa's stalling, though, was fundamentally problematic. Even the most vengeful of Habsburg statesmen could see that after a fortnight of inaction, suddenly reacting to the assassination with an ultimatum would appear opportunistic and coldly cynical abroad. An ultimatum would now be necessary too, though, since an all-out attack so long after the 28th of June would be viewed as a preemptive strike rather than a campaign of vengeance, which, as Berchtold had tried to stress to Tisa, much of Europe would surely have understood better at the time. But no European state allied to Serbia would be able to stand for an attack now. The solution left to Austria-Hungary then, Berchtold reasoned, was to create the ultimatum now and deliver it as soon as possible. Berchtold was especially well disposed towards the idea of sending the ultimatum with haste. He had in fact communicated the Austrian ambassador to Germany the plan that would ensure the ultimatum was delivered to Serbia by the late night of the next day, Wednesday the 15th of July a whole week before the original delivery time. The ultimatum would be accompanied by a 48-hour time limit, and though he ignored the harvest leave issue that had so flummoxed the chief of staff Conrad, it still seemed like a viable option to the foreign minister. At the very least, acting with haste now would hopefully remove the reputation he had in Germany for dithering indecisively in matters of state. The Germans, Berchtold hoped, would be pleased. However, there was another sneakier reason why Berchtold wanted to send the ultimatum to Belgrade in the late hours on the night of Wednesday the 15th of July. It was well known that the French president, Raymond Poincaré, would be travelling to St. Petersburg for an important summit with the Russian Tsar. Poincaré would be travelling by ship up the Baltic and would not arrive at the Russian capital until Monday the 20th of July. While he travelled, Berchtold wanted to make use of the five days of radio silence that would result from being on a Baltic cruiser 
by acting before the two Entente leaders had a chance to cooperate in person. If the ultimatum was delivered on the night of the 15th, it would expire on Friday the 17th, giving Austria-Hungary roughly two days to mobilise and act against Serbia before Russia and France could coordinate a strategy. By then, it was hoped, Belgrade would be in Habsburg hands, and even if this process was delayed by a day, it would still enable a window of opportunity for the Habsburgs to act against Serbia before its Entente allies could provide an answer. By following this plan, Berchtold would dodge the problems posed to Austrian plans by having the Russian and French leaders in the same place at once. If both leaders were together while word of the ultimatum and attack filtered in, then they could coordinate a joint response restricted by none of the communication barriers of the time. In other words, Berchtold did not want the two leaders anywhere near each other once the first started to fly in Belgrade. To have the two leaders apart was preferable, but it would surely be even better if the French president was stranded on some Baltic vessel and out of the loop of current events. This was the plan of the now empowered foreign minister of Austria-Hungary, to operate in the shadows, to deceive and bypass the other powers and prevent Serbia's allies from physically conversing so as to make the attack on Serbia, by now no longer blocked by the Hungarian minister-president, go off without a hitch. This plan of Berchtold's, of course, did not account for the harvest-leave issue, but perhaps Berchtold believed that once the ultimatum had been rejected it wouldn't matter if the rest of the world knew that Habsburg citizens were no longer at home on their farms, and were instead preparing for war. However, the biggest stumbling block to this plan of deception was not logistical. It was again Hungarian. Stefan Tisa, though he had come across reluctantly to the war party, did not yet relinquish his hold over Habsburg policy. He remained true to his commitment of the 7th of July at the Council, in which the ultimatum was developed, and where part of his terms was that he had to approve the text of this ultimatum. This wouldn't necessarily have slowed down the process too much. Berchtold would still be able to put his plan into effect. He did have a day, or maybe two, to play with. However, Tiza was not merely suggesting that he alone read the text of the ultimatum at his private study. Instead, he was insisting that the whole ministerial council approve the text while in session. Okay, Berchtold may not yet have panicked, except for the fact that the ministerial council could not meet until Sunday the 19th of July. This dramatic slowdown of Berchtold's plan pretty much meant that he had to rethink his entire strategy. If he went ahead with the plan to send it as soon as the council convened, then the ultimatum would be sent roughly around the 21st or 22nd of July. That would be in the middle of the Franco-Russian summit, when the two Entente leaders were together in person. If Berchtold presented such a crisis to the two leaders then, then the fear was that the two would be able to immediately develop a joint strategy that would ruin Austrian plans against Serbia, and that the Franco-Russian Entente would be able to push back any signs of pressure against their Balkan ally. There was no way that Berchtold was going to allow the ultimatum to be sent at that time period then, not when, as he put it, the two leaders would be swearing an oath of brotherhood under the influence of champagne. He told the German ambassador to Austria that it would be good if all the toasts were over before the note is delivered. Thus Berchtold now resigned himself to the fact that he would have to wait until the French president was leaving his Russian host, which Berchtold mistakenly believed was Saturday the 25th of July. 
Only then, the foreign minister upheld, could the ultimatum be sent. A whole month after the original assassination took place. Though on the surface it seemed catastrophically inept to delay for so long. If the assassination was old news now, imagine the passing of two more weeks. The wait did have much to recommend it to Berktold. Not only would the harvest leave process have definitely ended, but with the French president leaving rather than arriving to meet the Russian Tsar, the two allies would be even less well disposed to coordinate strategy, since they would both have to wait at least four days before the French delegation arrived home. By waiting until July 25th, Berktold would rob Poincaré the chance to put steel into Sazanov and the Russian Tsar. Poincaré was upheld by the Central Powers as perhaps the most belligerent of all the European rulers, and Berktold did not, under any circumstances, want him in a position to talk the Tsar or his ministers into war. Berktold at this stage still believed in the German ideology which revolved around Russian non-intervention in the event of an attack on Serbia. As the strongest statesman at the summit, if Berktold operated while Poincaré was on the journey home, no one would be there to egg on the Tsar. For this new plan to succeed though, the utmost secrecy was required. If the French or Russians caught wind of the plan for an ultimatum before it was sent, then they could coordinate the very response in person that Berchtold so feared. Furthermore, it would be a Franco-Russian atmosphere made all the more acidic by the revelation that Berchtold had tried to dupe them both. If Poincaré discovered that the ultimatum had been orchestrated with the express purpose of avoiding him and his summit, then it would light a fire under him, and would virtually guarantee his determination to press for a harsh response. Berchtold would have to thus ensure that no word of his plans leaked out before the ultimatum was delivered on the 25th of July. This would be a process aided by a lack of suspicion or interest in his affairs from the point of view of other foreign dignitaries. With Britain occupied with the Irish question, and France mostly focusing on the political scandal wrapped up in the Calais affair, such foreign disinterest didn't seem too difficult to achieve. The major issue was Russia. However, Berchtold had been given the additional good news that its foreign minister, Sergei Sazanov, would be vacationing until, as it happened, the 19th of July, when Austria-Hungary would debate the contents of the ultimatum and finalise its delivery plans. The possibility for leaks thus seemed small, and if Berchtold could indeed pull it off, the results would be just as impressive as he planned. Poincaré would be miles away from relevant information on his Baltic vessel, and the Tsar would be without his stiffening influence. Berchtold was further encouraged by the fact that he had already sent the War Minister and the Chief of Staff Conrad on extended vacation, so as to give the impression that nothing was amiss. Berchtold was surely thankful that neither would be present to potentially reveal to subordinates or others, in their excitement, of the impending plans for the ultimatum. He needed the operations to be watertight, but he informed both that they would be required to attend the Ministerial Council meeting insisted upon by Tisa. Berchtold told them not to worry though. He would provide public excuses for them to both momentarily break off their holidays and venture to the Austro-Hungarian capital. The foreign minister had then, by a result of his own previously understated cunning, developed a new plan from the old one that had been wrecked by Tisa's controlling. 
it was still a perfectly viable plan, so long as nobody outside of the loop got wind of its designs. Perkdold, perhaps not even willing to trust himself, called off his weekly reception for foreign ambassadors, and met with them only on request. It seemed as though he had checked every possibility for leakage, and had plugged every hole he could find. Vienna was still crawling with diplomats and journalists, not to mention spies though, and all had expected some sort of response from Vienna by now. Since no response had been forthcoming, they eagerly searched through every shred of evidence and rumour they could locate to try and paint their own picture of what was happening. It was these individuals that Berkdold so feared. If even one of them got hold of any info regarding the ultimatum plans, then it would be a matter of a few hours before the capitals of Europe knew of Habsburg intentions. However, it was Berkdold himself who, having reinforced all communication lines between the upper circle, failed to see the possibility of leaks within the meetings he conducted with his German ally. On the afternoon of Tuesday the 14th of July, merely hours after meeting with Tisa and being furnished with a new plan of action, Berchtold met with the German ambassador to Austria and the chief of foreign affairs in the Ballplatz. But he also allowed an old friend to sit in on the talks, Count Heinrich von Lutzow, who had served as the ambassador to Italy from 1904 to 1910, but had since retired. Berchtold, treating him as a sort of wise man elder, had permitted the old man to sit on his closed meeting with the Allied VIPs, and while he had been there, he had left everything out in the open about the ultimatum and the plans to keep the war localised. This seems to have horrified the career diplomat Lutzov, who called the idea of localising the war a fantasy, that Tuesday, Lutsov left Vienna for his country estate, and felt so concerned by the conversation he had had with Berchtold and those present that he elected to tell someone, setting in motion one of the most interesting, but also catastrophic for Austria-Hungary, examples of leaking information, which would in the end ruin Berchtold's plans for secrecy and jeopardise the entire ultimatum plan. Although Berchtold would never know, until it was too late. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.